Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining the podcast is Dr. Catherine Mock of the University of Miami. Catherine is also a lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's Six Assessment Report. Catherine shares what happens behind the scenes when drafting the report. We also discussed if the IPCC should continue what they do, which is release a report every six years informing the world we're in worse shape than in the previous report findings. Are there diminishing returns on this approach for the IPCC? We also dig into how the IPCC report is received by the media and the public. This was a fascinating conversation for me because for many of us, the IPCC process and results can be hard to digest. Catherine shares her perspective and experiences on what the IPCC is doing right and why it's so important for the world. Okay, upcoming episodes. Adaptation experts in Colorado share stories of how that state got serious about climate adaptation and the unique role the 2013 floods played in driving adaptation planning. World Wildlife Fund and the Coca-Cola Company also joined the podcast to share how the corporate sector is rethinking sustainability to include resilience and adaptation. Some great stuff on the way. Okay, let's join Dr. Catherine Mock and learn how we can all use the IPCC report more effectively. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Today, I have a very exciting episode. Joining me is Dr. Catherine Mock. Catherine is a professor at the University of Miami, Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. Hi, Catherine. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Great to talk with you again. All right. I'd just like to point out, you've been on the podcast before, but it's been forever. You were one of my first, I think, in the first six months that I was doing the podcast, I think March of 2017. So it's been a while. So it's great to have you back. It's great to be back. And I think adaptation is in a pretty different place as compared to when we first talked. So I think we've got a lot of themes to work through. Exactly. Yeah, it has changed. It's like it's been a generation. So, you know, we're going to talk about the IPCC report and some other areas that are going to just I, I'm really looking forward to. But let's just talk a little bit about you just to get it grounded. When we last talked, you were at Stanford and now you're at the University of Miami. Tell me about that. What, why that move? From 2010 to 2015, I was a staff scientist for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, mostly as a co-director of science, one of the few people actually getting a paycheck to work on these reports where you know, most of the effort are volunteer experts from around the world. After I finished that in 2015, Paris Agreement had just been agreed upon by all of the world's governments, I switched to a research position, pretty much still based at Stanford, Carnegie Institution, then Stanford. And in a way, for me, that was a big moment in my career, thinking hard about when I finished up this intensive IPCC effort, did I want to shift more towards policy or head more back towards research. And so I decided on research, and we can talk a lot about some of the themes I've been really passionate about in the space of the risks of a changing climate and how people are preparing. But it was also something where I was shifting back to research. So staying in that research role at Stanford really enabled me to you know, get my grounding again as a research scientist. And in 2018, I was looking really nationwide for a, a permanent home, a tenure track position. And, you know, Miami just jumped very quickly to the front of the list. There is so much happening on the ground, deeply intertwined with the type of work I'm passionate about, the type of work students are passionate about, pushing towards you know, just effective climate responses for the long term. And you got access to some great Ropa Vieja down there too. So it's, it's, it's all good. <laughs> 
Okay. So you ended up in Miami. That's fantastic. I'm originally from Florida, so I'm excited to see you're there doing the work that you're doing. So we're going to pivot into the IPCC report. We're going to talk about some of the other areas and the work that you're doing at Miami, but I'm going to wait for that. I want to just jump right in because the IPCC report recently came out. And I want you to thank my listeners, obviously a lot of very sophisticated listeners doing adaptation work, but you'd probably be surprised how little a lot of people know about the IPCC, the work they do, how it happens. And so I want you, you know, we're going to do this very briefly here at the beginning, but just let's ground my listeners in the IPCC. So first off, what is the IPCC? The way I think about the IPCC is that it's, you know, basically this grand partnership between the governments of the world, 195 member states and scientists from every single continent. It's been going since 1988 initially started under a UNEP and WMO initiative. What makes the IPCC unique, I think of it as really falling into four of its guiding rules. So number one, a mandate to be comprehensive. This is not just scientists saying, here's my latest result, what I found last week. It's really, what do we know about the climate issue right now? The current status of risk, the current status of responses, the needs and opportunities for the future. Second key feature is that there's a peer review process that is like scientific peer review on steroids. Anyone from around the world can submit comments that have to be responded to. And the adequacy of those responses for every single comment is deliberately monitored. So this recent report, you know, there were something like 60,000 plus review comments submitted on the report. They also go through these, you know, totally wild line by line government approval processes. (laughs) The best of times, the worst of times, we could definitely talk more about the role of those government approvals, but they're really crucial for creating scientific foundations that can go home to every single country context and be understood. And then finally, there's this somewhat impossible mandate to be policy relevant, but not prescribe what society should do. That's where it gets tricky because values are inherent to climate responses, but key part of how it unfolds. We could talk a little bit more about where IPCC reports stand right now. I know you and I have chatted previously about, do we really need these full-blown end-to-end assessments as we're just seeing now again in the AR6? What's the role of those ones? What's the role of the special reports that are more targeted? A lot to say there. And I guess some more 101 here too. So how often does the report come out? The IPCC work is structured through these major assessment report cycles. So the cycle just now coming to a close is called the sixth assessment report cycle. First assessment report came out in 1990, jumped forward every five to seven years. There's been another full-blown assessment on, you know, the physical science basis of the changing climate, what the impacts of the changing climate are, how to understand adaptive responses happening now to increase preparedness. And then, of course, what needs to be done to address the root cause of the changing climate, reducing emissions from land use and our energy system. And you alluded to how countries, they sign on or they, I guess, confirm the report if they're agreeing to it. But does the report have any regulatory powers over any countries? No. The IPCC, you know, doesn't have a police force that it can send in when countries are not responding to the changing climate. But I think the way to think about it is when these reports started, you know, climate change kind of felt like a hypothetical, right? Like it was understood in terms of the basic physics since the 1800s and scientific understanding in a bunch of different ways evolved through the 20th century. But, you know, even in the 1980s, early 1990s, I think there was this assumption that if we take the science seriously, 
reduce emissions of heat trapping gases, we can avoid climate change, avoid dangerous impacts for people everywhere. And as the years and decades have marched forward, it's become a really different picture where the role of these reports is not just saying what's our understanding of the changing climate, what does that mean for reducing emissions? Increasingly, it's what do we know about complex adaptive actions, like all of these different agencies of government, the private sector, civil society, taking action, not just to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases, but to deal with the impacts that are happening now. I love that you went straight there, like this police force. That's not what I had in mind. I had more like, all right, are there potential trade sanctions or whatever? But the police force, yeah, I wasn't thinking that. So maybe you get those kind of questions. Okay. We had chatted a little bit before about this. And you said one of the roles of the report, because people are like, what is this report ultimately about? Is that you said it takes science off the table. What did you mean by that? Okay. So a major audience for these reports are the negotiations among governments happening under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. There is so much for governments to negotiate. You know, where are we right now? It's a question of how do we reduce emissions of heat trapping gases, not just a little bit, but to net zero, ideally sooner rather than later. You know, it's how do we think about adaptation or increased preparedness for the impacts for communities, also noting the irreversible impacts happening for ecosystems. How do we think about finance where there's immense injustice baked into the climate issue on the global stage? A big part of that is that many of the nations that have contributed very little to our historical emissions of heat trapping gases may now be most susceptible to the impacts that are resulting. Who's gotten rich historically on the basis of greenhouse gas emissions versus who is still not contributing much, but bearing the impacts a ton there. And then, you know, what does it really mean to ensure that the the rule book for all of these negotiations leading to agreements is something that can monitor progress through time, increase the ratcheting up of that ambition? So there is so much that governments have to negotiate that's incredibly complex. And that isn't even starting in on exactly how much has the climate changed? How bad are the shifts happening for sea level rise or flooding or heat or drought? How is that impacting every part of the human experience from you know water and food security to rural versus urban areas to dimensions of our cultures? So the nice thing about these IPCC assessments for their role in informing the global negotiations is that they create a basis of understanding to inform all of those hard considerations of reducing emissions, adapting for impacts, and fair finance. We just can't go into like, I mean, the report is massive. And I've I've even looked at the summary for policymakers, and that's 40 pages too. So obviously, we can't spend that much time. But I think it's just interesting for people to get behind the curtain in the sense that you've been an author of that. What was your contribution? And you'd shared with me this, it's a shorter report on, on the idea of how to deal with risk. And that was one of the areas that you worked on, right? Yeah. In the last go round, the fifth assessment report cycle, I was a co-director of science. So in that case, my role was really helping shape all of the summary parts of the report, the summary for policymakers, the technical summary, the glossary. And I know a glossary sounds a little dorky and boring, but Wow, it's hard, you know, a laser like entry point to every concept across a multi thousand page report. This go around, though, 
I wasn't a staff scientist. I was participating as a regular author, what's called a lead author. And so I worked hard on the opening chapter of the report that really kind of frames where the assessment is right now. But also given all of my efforts in the past to think about these cross-cutting themes, I worked really hard on two major cross-cuts. So number one, there is this increased focus on just how complex the risks of a change in climate are. I'm also now working in the National Climate Assessment on a very similar chapter, which we call complex systems. And the way I think about like complex risks or complex systems is that science has to go in little silos, right? Like we have to look at tractable units for analysis. So we're going to look at just water or just impacts and adaptation options for crops. But then reality, everything starts to interact immediately, right? So it's not just how a drying climate affects the risk of fire. It's how a drying climate with warming, with shifts in precipitation patterns affects the risks of fire, where a lot of those risks of fire also relate to our long-term practices of fuel suppression and where the damages that result will be a function of our levels of preparedness, you know, at the household to the national scale. So we really thought hard about, you know, you've got the cascades of one thing going wrong and that triggering something else. You've got the confluence of stressors like inequities in societies that have on the one hand, nothing to do with the change in climate, but on the other hand, everything to do with who will bear the impacts and the capacity people have to respond. And we also, in this complex risk space, really were grappling with the fact that much of the early assessment and science in the climate issue assumed that the hard part was understanding the nature of the change in climate and the risks that it poses. Increasingly, we recognize that responses are just as hard, and those responses themselves carry a lot of risks that either lead to action not happening in the first place, or the action that happens having a whole bunch of side effects that weren't anticipated. And then the other crosscut that I was involved in a lot was called the Global Adaptation Mapping Initiative, led by Leah Baring Ford and 160 of her closest friends, right. where we really were trying to say, you know, what's the status of adaptation happening now around the globe? I'm very curious. Here I have someone who worked as a, an author on the report, and I, I think back to some of the previous versions, and there was always some controversy that the IPCC is not being urgent enough, or like when some of the sea level rise models weren't, they were very on the kind of low end. And I don't want to go necessarily into the science of that, but I'm curious, like behind the scenes is, you know, you had advocates for one side and advocates for others. How does that actually work with you guys? I mean, you sit in there kind of emailing back and forth, you're meeting together. And how do you ultimately make those decisions? And I know ultimately it's about science, but still there is, you take the more cautious approach. Can you give us sort of a, a sample of what it was like behind the, the scenes there? So many dimensions to that question. Okay. okay so, <laughs> you know, first of all, like what is an assessment, right? You know, how is this whole process in the IPCC different from regular science? And if I were to point to the biggest difference, it's the fact that you're looking at the full landscape of what we know, trying to figure out the strengths of our existing evidence, as well as a coherent ideally as incisive as possible interrogation of the limits to what we know right now as well. So oftentimes that's kind of across all of the science that exists. What are areas of agreement across super different disciplines and modes of inquiry? What are the areas of disagreement? And then crucially, why are there disagreements arising? 
there's a lot of infrastructure put into place for that. You know, part of this is doing literature reviews through pretty scientific methods called systematic review or meta-analysis, you know, defined processes that often actually have arisen in other disciplines like the medical field for figuring out across every single study right now, what's the best answer to a given question. But then you also have to recognize in a lot of these processes that, you know, you've got things like paleo data. So like cores taken down through sediment layers into the past, and you're comparing that type of evidence to a climate model or to more qualitative modes of social science inquiry. And so kind of getting all of these really different ways of thinking and ways of discovering what we know about the world around us to talk to each other in an assessment is a hugely difficult process. And so it is a very social process, right? People from incredibly different disciplines, incredibly different country contexts, incredibly different backgrounds in terms of research versus practitioner experience have to learn each other's language enough to really push hard on what do we know? What don't we know? What are the limits to understanding the reasons for disagreements across given lines of evidence? And that is something that it proceeds in a very iterative way through doing the reviews, commenting carefully on the current status, having structured discussions and debates about that evidence. Then you've got the you know tens of thousands of review comments dumped into this process that also are really crucial from inter- for interrogating that evidence from every possible direction. And so I guess I would say it is totally a multi-stage iterative process that is trying to make the best possible assessment of what we know right now and what we don't. I talk because I focus more on domestic adaptation, occasionally I go international, but the, the national climate assessment comes up quite a bit. Tell us how those two interact with each other. So the national climate, obviously, is sort of the domestic equivalent of the IPCC, but I'm, I think there's overlap in the authors. And But do you ever find that maybe the national climate assessment is at odds with what the IPCC is saying? Yeah, good question. And actually, just to jump back to your previous question for one second, I was thinking a little bit about like the most... I don't know, memorable social interactions in the IPCC experience and two jumped to mind. One I'll call the email avalanche, right? So especially in that AR5 cycle where I was involved in providing the scientific support for the summary documents, summary for policymakers, the most visible summary of these reports. You know, the co-chairs would send these documents out to about 70 to 100 authors and, you know, your inbox would just go completely crazy, right? It would just be like the moment you look at your inbox, you've got another 30 messages from authors with comments on how to make these documents better. So yeah, totally interactive. And then I think the other one I would say is that the government approval processes are wild. You know, just imagine a room where you've got a UN style session, people from every country and you're taking every single sentence scientifically and having it discussed by, you know, up to 500 people, really saying what seemed like such a clear, simple statement, can it be understood from all of these different backgrounds as that statement is considered with different languages from different countries of origin? And for me, that whole process was really a profound act of collaboration and a determination to develop a shared understanding of the state of the science. But then to jump to your NTA question, they interact a lot. And I guess one thing just to start with, it was very obvious, especially when I was staff for the IPCC, that, you know, we're lucky here in the U.S. to have such a major investment of not just having high level assessment globally of what's happening, but an assessment that makes it real for every different region across the U.S., every single sector. 
many of the low income countries pointed out that they don't have that privilege. They don't have the translation of the science into terms that resonate with their domestic decision making context. So first of all, I guess I would say it's really a luxury to have this dedicated policy relevant infrastructure in place to figure out the state of science and inform decision making. Okay, so then it is certainly the case that there is a lot of interaction between IPCC and NCA. I think the difference would be that, you know, the National Climate Assessment is supposed to be readable in every single part of its report by anyone who wants to pick it up. For the IPCC, the full-blown chapters, the executive summaries are supposed to be short, concise entry points, you know, but I'd be lying if I said that these are highly readable documents for to suggest to my mother, like, mom, open up this chapter if you want to understand a given topic. By contrast, for the National Climate Assessment, you know, we get a lot of editing advice by people who are professional science writers. And also there's kind of this combined infrastructure to make the graphics and the toolkits really accessible. We did a whole series of engagement workshops across every single chapter. And in our case, it was really, we heard from people participating that they want advice on what we know about solutions that work and solutions that don't work. And so kind of there can be a conversation that becomes, I hesitate to use the word more personal, but like in in a way more personal, because it's not just the interactions among people, but the personal interconnections go straight to decision-making as well. I obviously focus on adaptation, and that was a component of the IPCC for multiple reports. I'm wondering, did you get a chance to look at any of the uh, national adaptation action plans that all the f- federal departments were supposed to put out? And they came out last fall. Did you Were, did, were you able to look at any of those? Um, I did look at a number of them. Jesse Keenan came on, and I've talked about this, but it, it, these were very popular episodes where he went through each one, one by one, and offered his professional academic analysis, and it was fantastic. There's been a lot of positive response to that. One of the things that he pointed out, and he, he gave the Department of Defense a good grade. I mean, we didn't necessarily grade them, but he just said there was a pretty good plan. And one of the reasons why it stood out is that they used terminology that was aligned with the IPCC. Just even something as simple as definitions can be so important, whereas a lot of the other departments, they were just kind of winging it. I don't know if they were just using national climate assessment or whatever. And do you think that there's value in having, I guess, a bit more integration, even when it's this domestic focus with something like the IPCC is doing? Yeah. And I'm currently participating on a climate security roundtable under the National Academies. And you know, we're dealing with this exact same thing. And I think unsurprising that the Department of Defense was ahead of the game in terms of clear, crisp understanding of key concepts. You know, I always get a little tangled up about this in that when I was in charge of the IPCC glossary from the staff side of things, it's mind boggling how much academics can care about terminology, right? (laughs) Basically, you've got like a single word like vulnerability that just reverberates back in terms of decades of scholarship in all of the nuances being brought to that word. Okay, so then, you know, if you do public polling around the phrase adaptation or the phrase vulnerability, you quickly realize that all of those academic nuances mean nothing to anyone else. So on the one hand, I feel like it's it's crucial to be pragmatic when it comes to our language, but at the same time, some basic understanding of what is meant by phrases like risk in a changing climate, adaptive action, mitigation, reducing our emissions of heat trapping gases is really key for making sure that people are talking about the same thing and not talking at or past one another. Um, So I do think a key role in the National Climate Assessment is to translate 
concepts, certainly assessed in the IPCC, but in consistent, accessible language for our domestic context. And I think certainly right now, there is a recognition increasingly across the U.S., uh, certainly every federal agency, that climate risks matter and there's a need to prepare. I have listeners who are in the federal government who are dealing with these adaptation action plans. What would you say to them? What advice would you give them? Because a lot of them, and when I worked at the state level, I never even used the National Climate Assessment. It just seemed too in kind of like, all right, how do I approach this thing? Is there any advice on a practical way for Because the IPCC report should really be a resource for what they're doing. Any advice to them how they could maybe use it more effectively? I mean, I guess what I'd say is we have a lot of action happening domestically that informs this, right? So what do we know? So yes, crucially important to you know assess the vulnerabilities relevant in any context. What are the risks when it gets hotter, when there's a flood, when there's a drought, what starts to go wrong? I think there's also a real recognition that, you know, saying what existing actions could be adjusted a little bit to deal with those climate risks, crucially important. And a lot of adaptation we see now is basically saying we don't often need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to be smart about the changing climate in a bunch of different contexts. But then kind of at the end of that, like, so we've got a public health approach or we've got a hazard mitigation plan, and we can now just add consideration of the fact that risks are changing due to the changing climate into those ongoing processes. But we keep doing that. And at some point we might realize like, oh, well, actually, we've got some missing institutions as well. Things that if we don't have dedicated attention to climate risks, they will not easily get picked up by all of our ongoing decision-making processes. And certainly, you know, relocation across country borders linked to the change in climate would be a classic place where we don't really have any international institutional infrastructure for dealing with those types of migration contexts. I think also there's a lot to be said about what we know about process. So for example, pretty much any place in the U.S. right now where a lot of adaptive action is happening to deal with risks now, inequities and in outcomes now, much less the flexibility needed for keeping people safe into the future. There's a strong recognition that you need processes that enable people in more practitioner-oriented roles to talk with people who are doing the research and analysis and not just have that be a one-off, but to have that be something that enables evaluation of actions through time to enable learning in all these types of investments. So I think all of that kind of what are some of the basics of how vulnerabilities and risks can be assessed, how options can be developed through different scenarios, but then also kind of the, the process-based infrastructure to make knowledge relevant to these decisions that will evolve through time. All of that is crucial in any federal context and frankly, far beyond. All right, Catherine, that was great. I wanted to ground people in the report itself. It's been released relatively recently, and I will have links to the report. People can go look at those summaries for policymakers. They can look at the overall report. One of the things that you and I talked about in our sort of advanced conversation is how the report is received, how that's received by the public, by the media. And I want to dig into that because I think it's really important because at the end of the day, I look at that the IPCC is saying is that Red alert, red alert. The planet is in a very bad situation. It's getting worse. And, you know, how do you communicate that and still be grounded in science? And let's just, you know, jump in. It just came out. What's your own sort of uh, take on how the media responded to it? What, I guess, just your kind of gut reaction. How did they do? Uh, so many ways to go with that. I mean, I think certainly 
there have been massive world events happening. So Ukraine and Russia unfolding as IPCC reports are coming out, kind of a no-brainer in terms of which issue in the public consciousness feels urgent right now. I guess I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of all of the students I work with and the ways in which their awareness of the changing climate is so profoundly different from a generation in the past, certainly my generation. And is there widespread awareness of the changing climate right now? I think compared to people who grew up in the 80s or the 90s, the answer is frankly an overwhelming yes, right? Kind of these concepts of like people becoming anxious given the fact that it feels like our planet is no longer in a safe space. What that means to kind of fear for the next generation, which can be very personal when we think about our own families. So I guess I would say it's easy to look at any given IPCC report and say, oh, just another IPCC report. We're on number six. But at the same time, now pretty much any extreme event that happens, whether it's the you know profound heat wave happening now, certainly as has unfolded over the last year as well, uh, whether it's some of the supercharged floods that have been so devastating, we're seeing mainstream attention to the role of the changing climate in things that are unfolding in real time. And a lot of that is enabled by the robust scientific assessment that basically means, you know, the warming is unequivocal, it's due to us, and it's having widespread impacts now. So I guess I would say I wouldn't look to just kind of what happens the day after a report is released. For me, where are we on the climate issue? What is awareness like? Frankly, what does that mean for supporting emotional well-being of people globally grappling with this now generational challenge? For me, all of that is really deeply relevant. So the IPCC there, I mean, the fundamental role is getting the scientists together to do this assessment, but they always are trying to think about audience and how it's going to be absorbed. You know, who is the target audience? Are those conversations actually happening? Or are they just like, you know what, we're just giving this to the high level policymakers? How does that unfold? There are a lot of ways to think about the audience of an IPCC report. The most narrow answer would be government negotiators under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. But then, frankly, I think it's crucial to recognize that the actual audience goes very far beyond that. And when I was staffed with the IPCC, I was basically the science contact for an incredible team of professional communications experts who were looking to connect these reports with media, with communities, with journalists, with residents in every single country. It's really hard to have global impact, right? This is a very big planet that we inhabit, but that has largely been the goal. And I think we can point to some pretty significant successes in terms of the role of these reports in creating a global baseline for understanding. So as an author, and do they, I mean, there's so many scientists who are working on this. Do, does the IPCC give you talking points? I mean, it, it must be hard. You become an ambassador like you're doing right now, but is there sort of official language that they kind of want you to stick to, or they just trust you to say the right thing because you kind of know how the process works? I guess I'd say there's a fair amount of training of authors. I think there's a real recognition that if you're not proactive about communications, you're flat on your feet and missing major opportunities to share understanding of the change in climate. But when I started working with the uh, IPCC, I was pretty much straight out of my PhD and done, you know, workshops for graduate students on how to communicate our science. I'd never done a taped interview or 
a filmed interview or a filmed down the barrel interview where you're, you know, <laughs> eye locking with the camera. And they would have professional media trainers basically just doing mock interviews. And, you know, my, my first interview, I will never forget it. I was wearing like this very multicolored sweater. I had my hair tied back like super tightly. And then as I was supposed to be looking straight at the camera, I kept like looking up at the far right corner. And then I talked way too fast and I used mostly jargon. You know, and the media trainers were like, okay, whatever you do, don't repeat anything you did and you will be fine. (laughs) So, you know, you really do learn a lot, largely through just kind of the practice with some professional coaching on how to be a little bit more accessible in the language you use, recognizing that we as scientists get trained up to talk to colleagues who have heavy jargon and specific language. And that does not resonate very well for the public as a whole. You know, so obviously I, I like to use my podcast and I'm just, you know, I'm very obsessed with the idea of like, how do you communicate the, the topic of climate change and make it more urgent? Because it's just going to unfold over decades and probably hundreds of years. And yet, how do we message it in a way that makes it more urgent? And I just, IPCC, you guys are, you know, you're, you're there basically saying, here's a reminder. This is why it's so urgent. And yet it's very difficult to get some traction on the, you know, ramping it up. And, and I, what you just said, I just want to bring that back is that you were talking about when it was released, kind of overlapped with what was going on with Ukraine. And you, you conceded, well, you sort of see why that captured the media's imagination and perfectly disagree with me. But I would argue, well, no, what is, you know, climate change and how it's unfolding around the globe, you could probably just even put, get some metrics on like, look how many more people are being impacted right now than are being impacted by Ukraine. And yet the media, obviously, it's a war. I mean, it's important. This is a very serious issue. But could you make an argument that, of course, climate change is actually affecting a lot more people with something like what's happening in India and such? And so I think this idea of giving the media a pass on what they focus on. Yeah. I mean, uh, gosh, there are so many different parts of climate communications that are really hard, right? So I think there's a tendency for climate communications to keep the issue far off in the future. You know, this is about impacts that could happen under a 4C degree Celsius increase. And, you know, we're at a little over one degree Celsius increase right now. There's a tendency, historically at least, although I really think this is changing, to make it feel like it's an issue for other people. Kind of the classic challenge of if this is a challenge about polar bears and almost no one has actually met a polar bear in person, they may not see the relevance in their own life. And then I think there's the real question of agency. So if you take the risk seriously, do you feel empowered to do something about them in your own life? I do think that's shifting. So I think kind of um, the classic frame applied for climate science, and certainly the IPCC has been kind of a frame of alarmism. There's a really nice study after the AR5, basically saying, despite every effort we made across all that communications training, you know, that talk about solutions, don't make this be about the end of the world, but we'll have these solutions heavy interviews. And then the headline is, you know, IPCC says the world is going to end in a decade or whatever it is. And so kind of moving past alarmism, recognizing that these are very serious, real risks, but when people are faced with alarmism, they tune out. It's just overwhelming, right? Our lives are hard enough as it is. And that there's a real need for communication that looks at the seriousness of the risk, but very quickly translates that into what we are doing about it, what we can be doing about it more. You know, the fact that reducing emissions of heat trapping gases, we can get to about 80% reduction on the technologies that exist now. It's a question of deploying them. And same goes for adaptation, tons we know how to do, lots that we're learning about, 
but also so many entry points for taking action today and tomorrow. And I don't know if you have special teams there. I mean, you talk about the works of doing a communication. And I think there's too much reliance on scientists being the communicators. It's great when one of you guys can really communicate well, like a Catherine Hayhoe, and you're, you're a great communicator. But scientists are scientists, and they need to be doing what they're doing. And you wouldn't take a professional communicator and say, all right, do some climate science. You wouldn't switch it around like that. So I think just relying on scientists to necessarily be the ambassadors is that's putting too much on them. It's time to get serious saying, all right, what is the A game when it comes to communicating and we're not necessarily doing that. And I think of the Montreal Protocol, when you looked at what the ozone hole was happening, and it didn't become this big, broad public issue. And I brought this up on the podcast before, but I thought leadership around the world, they were presented by the scientists and they said, this is important. This is serious. And they, they didn't go and get public support for it. They said, all right, we had to do this really quickly and let's make some tough decisions here. And they did. And I think the, you know, we, we missed a window there. Scientists talking to political, it's about political leadership, making some of these tough decisions. And it's just the, this notion that we're just going to convince the public that you need to do this. I, I just don't know if that will ever be successful. Two main thoughts come to mind. Number one, I do think there are meaningful comparisons between, say, the Paris Agreement and the Montreal Protocol. The profound difference is that it was a handful of companies that really needed to yeah. take action with respect to the Montreal Protocol. So the coordination challenge, like, you know, everything we do <laughs> relies on emissions of heat trapping gases. And this is not something where you can get six companies in a room and come up with a plan for creating a solution. I think the other thing where you started with, totally agree that there are so many careers relevant to the climate issue right now. And basically saying to a few academics, like, you're our hope, you know, we will not solve this challenge. And I think a lot about a phrase called boundary spanning. And so just in kind of the communication space, there are so many people and companies and social justice organizations that are recognizing that they have a huge role to address the changing climate. And that can be things like communicating and translating the science, bringing people together, doing that translation basically across you know, the priorities relevant in a given neighborhood and the ways that climate responses could help support them, building relationships and networks that endure. And so I view you know, the whole action network on climate change to be just an incredibly rich landscape and one where totally, you know, those of us who are academics should not be the primary messengers on this issue in most contexts that are relevant. Yes, good. I agree. And I think, yeah, it's putting too much on you scientists. You guys are doing, you have a J job. And so, well, I do want to transition to this communicating uh, the report now, but I, I would just like, there'll be another report. And I wonder uh, the people at the IPCC, you could almost hit cruise control. It's like, okay, the next assessment will just show things have gotten worse and, you know, it's going to even be harder. And so is there any radical rethinking on what the IPCC might try to propose doing? And I'm sitting there going, get a bunch of social scientists together. And how do you manipulate behavior so that people get on board with this? And I say manipulate, I try not to make that too negative. But you see what I'm saying? Is there any talk of will or will it just be the next iteration of things are just worse? <laughs> I love this question. It's a little depressing to say in 10 years, will just seem worse. Okay. A little bit discouraging, I guess. But if I were to kind of start in on a space, at some point, I went back and I read all of the media coverage that had happened around the early IPCC assessments. And, you know, this is like people like Michael Oppenheimer or Tom Stocker or Steve Schneider when they were, 
young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, you're basically just saying the next decade is critical, right? <laughs> and unfortunately, I feel like we're still saying the same thing, the next decade is critical against this shifting baseline of things seemingly getting worse and worse. Okay, if we were to go with a half glass full view of the landscape, I think the the other crucial starting point is that tons of action is happening now, right? And it, it wasn't in the 80s or the 90s. And so I think, how do we get to the next round of IPCC or NCA, not just feeling like it's yet another report saying that the climate is warming and there's urgency, the next decade is critical. It really raises this question of what does it mean to get to major breakthroughs in the policies that are happening, private sector seriousness about commitments to reducing emissions and increasing resiliency. Kids are so crucial in this issue, right? And we've seen that over the last five years. What does it mean to keep that as something that is front and center, reminding decision makers of who really stands to benefit from responses happening now? I think kind of the hopeful view of the next decade would be can we keep unleashing responses such that this is not just something where we feel like we're flat on our heels watching the changing climate get worse? You know, and I agree with you, this notion you hear like, I've, you know, that the next five years are absolutely critical. And he's like, that's so dangerous to use rhetoric like that. It's, you know, are you familiar with human nature? And so it's just, it's not really helping, but I, where I come out hopeful on this is just, I think with adaptation is, you know, more people get into that space that maybe we can actually get some true meaningful mitigation through adaptation. It's sort of getting a lot more people exposed to the notion of climate change, what it means. And so even though you might be dealing with the impacts, it, there it is. It's not this kind of 2070 kind of thing. And it's just like, all right, well, let's not make this worse. And so I had this, I guess, naive sense that once we really ramp up adaptation, it just might trigger some mitigation at a really big scale. Totally. I mean, I think in a way, oftentimes, exactly as you're saying, it's experience with intensifying climate risks, whether it's the rising seas, meaning that on your drive to work, you're now going through salt water or years that get hotter and hotter and hotter, that often is an entry point to wanting to address the challenges. And that often creates openness and kind of like safety in eventually stepping towards an understanding that we also need to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases. And in a way, our ability to adapt is most profoundly modulated by how successful we are in reining in our emissions of heat trapping gases. I'm going to put you on a spot a little bit here, and I'd mentioned some of the federal folks, but let's say I had a lot of just on the ground people who listen, like urban planners and landscape architects. Where would you point them to in the IPCC report that they could just be some some concrete? I mean, maybe it's the adaptation sections and such, but how they could it could inform some of the work that they're doing, or if they're getting started, how could they take advantage of all this great information that's in the report? I guess I'd point to a few different areas. So one, there's a lot of emphasis on, you know, what does it mean to shift to adapting to climate risks, where a lot of the decision-making processes that are relevant, you know, may have come out of, for example, disaster risk reduction or disaster management that is really good at thinking about the climate angle on a flood occurs or a fire occurs, but may not be building in the fact that these risks are now changing. So not good enough to just understand what's happened in the past. Also recognizing that some of our decision-making priorities historically were disproportionately about, you know, 
damage to properties as compared to damage to people's lives more broadly. So as we shift from kind of all of these decision-making processes that are kind of climate adjacent to ones that are climate adaptive, I think, first of all, key role of recognizing that a lot of what worked in the past still holds. We're now just building in the fact that those risks are changing. I think another big thing is that the changing climate is forcing us to think hard about coordination of action in a stationary climate you know, maybe coastal management could be separate from land use planning, could be separate from stormwater management. But now as seas rise and there are wide open questions about who lives where, how the geography of risk is shaping the geography of our real estate markets and our reliance on things like insurance, we're seeing, and these reports are really trying to grapple with the fact that a lot more coordination is crucial. And we're still really learning what ends up working well there. Two more things I would point to that I think are deeply relevant. So one, increasing focus on equity across the board, who is participating in adaptation decision-making, and then where there is a lot of participation, what is actually happening? And are the benefits of ongoing investments in stormwater management or heat health plans something that is representing the range of priorities and experiences across the population, or as has historically been the case in most decision-making processes, are a few most powerful or most influential or most wealthy individuals dominating the perpetuation of those benefits through time, often across racial and class-based lines. So I think kind of these different dimensions of equity and justice, who's participating, what's the nature of the experience, What's the nature of the distribution of risks and benefits from our policy actions? Super crucial moving forward. Last thing I'd point to is that the long term is unambiguously relevant and our actions around where we build, where we rebuild after disasters, how we finance projects, all of that can serve to accumulate people and stuff in hazardous places, you know, or we might get better than we have been historically at trying to funnel our investments to safer places on the landscape. Doing that requires, you know, keeping off options open in a way that cuts against the grain a little bit. But a lot of the the method space there of kind of how to make decisions under these deeper uncertainties of how the climate and societies will evolve into the future, there's been an immense evolution of decision support in that space. And that certainly would be kind of yet another place where the report really weighed in on what's working now. Fantastic. All right, guys, you hear that? So that's very relevant to a lot of what you're doing out there. So, you know, have at it. All right, Catherine, I want to do one final pivot here. And I want to talk about your work at the University of Miami. So can you talked a little bit about that, but what, what's really keeping you busy? There may be some of what that your students are doing, but what's your when you're doing your academic research there? It's so fun. I guess I would say different projects either are often taking a flood entry point or a heat entry point, sometimes a fire entry point, but they're largely all about, you know, how do we do adaptation where the benefits address the risks as they exist now, real emphasis on equity, because we may miss the bulk of the human experience of the changing climate if we just rely on existing power structures to inform understanding of what the challenges are. How do we learn through time? How do we have long-term flexibility so we're not just kind of digging ourselves into a deeper hole? Oftentimes thinking about kind of all of the different challenges there where some of it's about like the complexity of, you know, human security in a changing climate. Where is the vital core of human existence being impacted? Other times it's kind of, um, what does it mean to think about the long-term 
by contemplating some of the most contentious response options that have existed historically, for example, removing development out of a place of very high risk. So got lots of projects, be happy to go further on any of them. But I think really amazing part of being based in Miami is that oftentimes these issues very quickly are going local to global in that domestically, what happens at the local level is modulated by state and federal action as well. And certainly what we learn in a place like Miami has transferability in terms of some things that can be learned and replicated really much more broadly than that. Oh, yeah. No, I guess I want to dig in a little bit more. Is, you know, I have listeners who, who want to go study adaptation. There's actually not a lot of schools where here's a master's in adaptation or even an undergrad. And a lot of scientists like you are doing amazing work, but you might have an institute at the university. But does the university, might, are there, is there actual coursework in adaptation? How, how does that work there? Definitely. I think this is something where, you know, over the next five, 10 years, we're going to see a blossoming of programs nationwide. We've got a lot of precursors going into place across university contexts. The University of Miami, the students I work with are in undergraduate programs, professional master's programs, research master's programs, and PhD programs. And we at the university strongly recognize that we need to bring together adaptation across the campus, right? So at the faculty level, they give us a lot of research funding that's all about, you know, I'm at the Marine campus in the Department of Environmental Science and Policy, but I can work with colleagues from the School of Architecture or the medical campus or the law school or art and art history, recognizing that kind of the inquiry there with faculty working together with teams of students and colleagues can stretch across the university as a whole. But we're also recognizing very strongly that for student programs, there's a need to do that same type of integration. And so we've been pushing forward with the Climate Resilience Academy that is aiming to do just that, to recognize that there are a lot of different professional master's programs across the university right now, undergraduate programs, and we could do better to make sure that the adaptation relevant angles, climate responses writ large are drawing from the diverse strands that are relevant from law to business to science, for example. Fantastic. And I think you get asked to do a lot of things, but I, I am trying to encourage the, the adaptation space. It's its own, this own emerging sector and there. You're an adaptation professional. And of course, there's a lot of overlap with sustainability and these other areas. Do you feel like you stay connected in your professor and, you know, professors do certain things, but it, do you have any desire? Do you feel like there's overlap happening with people that are kind of in the this adaptation of professional class? Oh, totally. And I mean, most of the research I do is engaged research, right? Where teams of scientists and analysts are working with people in local government, people in the private sector, people in community organizations for our nationwide studies, do a lot of conversations with FEMA or across state context, really, the way that hazard mitigation, environmental protection, climate adaptation come together. So I think. For those of us helping on the science side, most of the pressing open questions need to be discovered in partnership with people who are making solutions happen. Okay, fantastic. All right, Catherine, a question I ask all my guests, if you could recommend one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? Linda Shy or Carlos Martin. But I think you've already talked with maybe one or possibly both of them. <laughs> well, Linda, I have twice, but so, so tell me about Carlos. He's doing really cool work looking at the interconnections between the changing climate and housing. And in a way, I think it's it's a powerful entry point in that our homes are the first line of defense in a changing climate. 
and often where we have missed out on opportunities for equitable, fair adaptation historically. I mean, even just in Miami, for example, right, this historical assumption that heat is not an issue because people have air conditioning and can afford to turn it on. Well, if your building quality is not adequate, if you don't have an AC unit or you don't have a functional AC unit or the electricity bill is too high, people are getting quite hot in ways that impacts their health and their well-being. And so I think it's just kind of a really powerful entry point because there are lots of concrete, tangible, adaptive actions that can be taken at the same time that this entry point unfolds the complexity of everything from land use planning, racism in that land use planning historically, inequities that exist socially and economically in our societies to the current day, and what it means to keep everyone safe as the climate continues to warm. Okay, great suggestion. All right, Catherine, this has been a pleasure. This was a fantastic conversation for me. I just I had my own questions about the IPCC, and I want to thank you. You that you know, there's volunteers that you know put that report together, and you you're doing a great service for the entire planet. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much, Doug. Really a pleasure to talk with you again. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Catherine for coming on the podcast. I'll admit, the IPCC process has always seemed overly complicated to me. I think Catherine did an excellent job of explaining that the IPCC is creating a baseline of science, the best science possible. But as we discussed with each new report, it's reinforcing what we already knew. Climate change is happening, and it's gotten worse since the last report. In six years, will the world benefit by having the IPCC release another report saying the same thing? I think it's time for the social scientists to take over and do a report on what policy pathways we can take to take action. I know some of that is happening, but that's different than being the main purpose of the IPCC. We know the climate science is sound. At this point, it is only providing diminishing returns on the science that is slightly more accurate. The climate denialists will do what they do, no matter how good the science gets. The adults in the room know the science is accurate. If there is any major climate science pivot, they should also consider focusing more on adaptation science. World governments are going to have to make increasingly controversial decisions on adaptation, and there is still a lot of guesswork going on out there. I don't want to leave the impression that I don't support what the IPCC is and what it represents. It is truly one of the great causes in human history. They won a Nobel Prize because the Nobel Committee understood the gravity of the work they were doing. But we are in a new phase. We need leaders understanding what the IPCC truly represents, and that is a dire warning to the world. Let's act accordingly without falling prey to doom and gloom information approaches. Definitely keep track of Catherine's work. She's doing some really interesting things in the adaptation space. There are links in the show notes. Okay, I'm always hearing from listeners that they have started listening to the podcast in the last few months or in the past year, and that means they have missed out on a bountiful archive if they haven't poked around in those previous episodes. So I'm going to dig in the vault when I can and highlight two previous episodes in case you need some recommendations. In episode 142, The Majestic Sky Islands in the Desert Southwest, Tales of Adaptation, Border Walls, and the Elusive Jaguar, I join with the Sky Island Alliance to discover conservation in the desert southwest, learn about the unique Sky Island ecosystems along the U.S.-Mexican border, hear about the unique biodiversity in the region, and how landscapes are adapting to climate change and the negative impacts of the border wall on wildlife and ecology in the region. I joined Sky Island Alliance staff in a visit to the border wall to learn about these issues. Okay, in episode 130 of America Adapts, assessing the, the 
the Biden climate adaptation approaches, I hosted Dr. Jesse Keenan of Tulane University. You know Jesse well. Jesse dissected some of the early moves on climate policy in the Biden administration. He shared his thoughts on staffing decisions and how adaptation is and isn't being prioritized through the executive orders. Also, in a recurring segment, Judge Alice Hill shared insights on what FEMA can do to prioritize climate change. This is a good chance to catch up on what President Biden was doing early on in adaptation in his administration. I mention this every episode, but what is your adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what is climate adaptation? And are you finding that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation story, consider sponsoring a whole episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location and record some of these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the amazing work you're doing. Some of my partners in this process have been NRDC, University of Pennsylvania Wharton, World Wildlife Fund, UCLA, and some corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. I'm always amazed when communication managers haven't even considered a podcast or starting their own. Previous sponsors have used the podcast to communicate with their own members, board members, and even funders. And my previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty fun since there's a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together, in my opinion. So please reach out and let's have a conversation so you can learn more. And also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you will enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentations. I love giving those. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences doing adaptation around the world. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. Check out the website, americadapts.org. And I love hearing from you. And I've heard from some people saying, hey, I'm going to follow you up on what you asked about contacting me. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Or just letting me know that you're in this space and you get some value out of the podcast. I love hearing who my listeners are and all the different things that they're doing. It is the highlight of my week. I can be reached at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email, please. It's greatly appreciated. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.